Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks for being with us here today as we are continuing in uh, a series that we've been in, in the Old Testament book, this book of Amos. And uh, if you are uh, just kind of jumping in with us here today, if you're a guest or uh, if you're just, if maybe you missed the last uh, maybe weeks of this series, let me kind of keep catch up to speed with what it is that we've been talking about here in this series together. So we are looking together at uh, just this incredible book of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Amos. And what we've been saying is we've saying that the book of Amos is actually one of the books of the Bible that is oftentimes overlooked. And many people have not read the book of Amos. We said that many people don't even know that there is a book of Amos. It's kind of a small book. It's called a minor prophet, and it's kind of tucked away in the Old Testament. And what we've been saying is we've been saying that even though this book of the Bible is oftentimes overlooked, we said the book of Amos is um, strikingly relevant to us today. And we said that in a lot of ways, that even though the book of Amos, we are, we're about 2,700 years detached from that book and the cultural setting in which it was placed in, we said that even though we're 2,700 years detached from this book, we, we actually live in a lot of ways in a parallel culture, uh, that we find ourselves in a time today, in a culture today, in a society today that is not much unlike that in Amos's time. And so because of that, we've been going through this series and just kind of looking at uh, what it might have to say, what God might have to say to us through this prophet, through the prophet of Amos. So what we said we, we find in the book of Amos, we said the book of Amos is actually written to uh, a group of people called the Israelites. The Israelites uh, were considered God's people, kind of God's chosen nation. And we said the Israelites would have been people who would have said that God was the centerpiece of their life, right? That would have been kind of their claim. They would have said that they were people who were defined and directed by God, that God was the number one priority in their lives. And yet what we find in the book of Amos is that here these people, God's people, had drifted dangerously far from God's heart, from his desires, from the things that that mattered to God and the, the ways that God wanted his people to live, that his people had drifted dangerously far from his heart, and they were really unaware that that had occurred. And so here's what we said. We said that for us today, this book is extremely relevant, especially to those of us who follow Jesus. And of course, I know that not everyone in this room today might follow Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating the whole Jesus question. But we said for those of us who follow Christ, for those of us that would say that Jesus is the one who defines and directs our lives, for those of us who would say that, yeah, God is our first priority in life, we said that we are just as susceptible as God's people back in Amos' time to this same drift. That all of us have a proclivity, like this natural tendency to drift away from God's heart. And oftentimes it can happen when we're totally unaware. And so for that reason, we said the book of Amos is actually really important. Uh, because what Amos does is Amos almost serves as a wake-up call. It's not, it's not an easy read. Amos is not the easiest of reads. But we said it's, it's kind of a wake-up call. And it helps us understand how this drift occurs. It helps us to identify some of the ways that we drift from God. And then it allows us to kind of tether ourselves back to the heart of God. So the way that we've been organizing this series, if you've been with us, you might remember we said that we've been looking together at what we called seven undercurrents of spiritual drift. And here's what we meant by that. We said the book of Amos is actually going to reveal to us seven contributing factors of how this dangerous drift can occur. And so we've been looking each week at one of these, at these different dangerous drifts. So far, we've seen six of these together. So the first one we looked at was called domesticating God. The second was blessing blockage, corrupting justice, forgetting grace, building offline, and selective hearing. These were the seven undercurrents that we've looked at so far. And by the way, I just encourage you, if you missed any of those previous conversations, you can go check out our website. Uh, You can download our app, go to our website, 
and you can watch or listen to any of these previous conversations. That'll probably help you make sense of what we've talked about in the past. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the seventh undercurrent of spiritual drift. And then next week we're actually going to do a conclusion, and that'll be the end of our Amos series. But today we're looking at the seventh undercurrent of spiritual drift, and that's going to be this. Today we're going to look at this undercurrent that we're calling Scripture Starvation. Okay? Scripture Starvation. Seven undercurrents of spiritual drift. One of the ways that we drift spiritually from the heart of God is through something we're going to see in Amos that we're calling scripture starvation. Okay, so what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that? How does that show up in the book of Amos, and then how does that show up in our lives? That's what we want to sort of talk about today. So to do that, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles yet again, and we're going to return back to the book of Amos, and specifically... We're going to be going to Amos chapter 8 today. So if you want to get your Bibles and go with me to Amos chapter 8, now you can go ahead and do that. Um, if you brought your own Bible, you can find Amos there. If you uh, want to use the Grace Church app, you can actually access the free Bible that way. If you have a Bible app, you can utilize that. And of course, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can use one of those black Bibles that we have. You can turn to, uh, to 641. That's where you're going to find Amos chapter 8. So you can go ahead and do that. If you want to, go ahead and uh, get to Amos chapter 8. And of course, let me just say too that if you're a guest with us today and if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, uh, we would love for you to have one. And so you can just take one of those black Bibles, make that a gift from us to you, and uh, we would love it if you would have a copy of the Bible. So Amos chapter 8. As you guys are flipping to Amos chapter 8, let me ask you just a quick question. Is anyone, just by show of hands, is anyone in the room familiar with the term food jag? This term food jag, Anybody? Okay, good. Yeah, no, but I, I actually had never heard of this until uh, two weeks ago. I had heard this term food jag. So food jag is actually a technical term that refers to um, a period in the development of a child's life where they kind of go through a season where they will only eat one type of food and it's difficult to get them to eat any other types of foods, right? So for example, if you have a kid that only eats pizza, and all they want is pizza for every meal, and it's hard to get them to eat anything else. That's called a food jag, right? Or if they only eat chicken nuggets or whatever it might be, that's called a food jag. And of course, I think all of us who have kids or any of us who were kids, which is all of us, know this is a pretty normal thing, right? Food jags are pretty normal. So I, in fact, just thinking about our kids, uh, my wife and I, we have three kids, and all three of them, in some way or another, we experience this, this the food jag, right? So Here'd be a good example. Uh, our daughter right now, we have a little princess. She's our, our only little girl, and so she's, she's just, she's beautiful, and I've told you she's feisty and strong-willed uh, more than any of our other kids, but she, she's experiencing a bit of a food jack. So right now, the food that she wants to eat all the time is she wants to eat pretzels. She just wants to eat pretzels, and she could eat pretzels every meal. She could eat pretzels all the time. I mean, of course, she likes cookies, and she likes candy and all the stuff she shouldn't like, but pretzels are kind of like her go-to. And so because of this, a lot of times when we try to get her to eat healthy food, we try to eat, get her to eat, you know, broccoli or chicken or fruits or vegetables, there's a lot of battle, right? There's a food. So a lot of times at our dinner table, there'll be many times that she's in her high chair and everyone is done eating and she's still sitting there in her high chair for a half an hour or 45 minutes later because she's unwilling to, to eat the food that she needs to eat. And so this becomes a battle of wills. And we'll say, you know, Gracie, you need to eat your broccoli, you need to eat your chicken. It's kind of funny right now, because what, what I'll do is I'll say, or my wife and I will say, Gracie, you know, you need to eat your, you can't get down until you eat at least a couple bites of your chicken. And it's kind of funny, it's kind of cute, because right now she can't say no correctly. And so she actually says, Mao. that's how she says no. So we'll say, Gracie, you need to eat your chicken. And she'll just go, Mao. I'm like, well, then you can't get down, and she cries. And then we're like, and then Gracie, do you want to get down? And she'll say, yes. That's how she says yes. Gracie, you want to get down? Yes. 
then you have to eat some of your, your broccoli or your chicken. Mow! And then, no, you can't get down. She'll cry. So what I started to do, I don't know if this is good parenting or not. What I started to do, though, is I started to get the pretzels out. And I'll, I'll go over to Gracie, and she'll be sitting there with her chicken in front of her, not eating it, being stubborn and strong-willed. And I'll say, Gracie, I'll say, Gracie, do you want a pretzel? You want a pretzel? And she goes, yes, you know? And, and then I act like I'm going to give it to her, and she puts her hands out, and I take it away. And I go, well, then you're going to have to eat your t- chicken. She goes, mow. Well, then you can't have a pretzel. And she cries. And then after a bit, I go back, and I say, Gracie, do you want a pretzel? Yes, you know? Well, then you got to eat some chicken. Mow. And we'll do this for... I just think it's funny. And we'll do this for half an hour, 45 minutes. So eventually, it breaks her will, and she'll eat some chicken, and then she can have some pretzels. That's kind of a food jag. Right? That's what a food jag is kind of all about. And I think most of the time, we outgrow food jags. People outgrow food jags. But it's interesting. I actually heard a story a couple weeks ago about a girl, 17-year-old girl in Britain. Her name is Stacy Irvine, who never outgrew her food jag. And listen to this. Unbelievably, for 15 years straight, she ate nothing but chicken nuggets. And I mean, I mean nothing. Like, you think I'm exaggerating? You can read the article yourself. Nothing for 15 years but chicken nuggets. And when I first heard of that story, I thought, what parent lets their kid eat nothing but chicken nuggets? But I guess she had such a severe food jag that she would choose starvation over eating chicken nuggets. And so for 15 years, her parents just finally gave up, and she just ate nothing but chicken nuggets. And she didn't think anything was wrong with this until one day, she's 17 years old, and she's at work, and she collapses. She just falls over, and her, she has shortness of breath. Her blood pressure is super high. They rush her to the hospital, and the doctors, of course, are horrified to find out that here she's eaten nothing but chicken nuggets for 15 years She said to the doctors, this was her quote, she said, I have never had fruits and vegetables. And so they they did an analysis on her. She had swollen veins in her tongue. She was severely anemic. She was completely malnourished. They had to put her on emergency doses of vitamins for, I think, several weeks and even months after this whole thing occurred. And so this whole thing, she collapsed. And, And the crazy thing is that she said that she really didn't think it was that big of a deal until she collapsed, and then she realized she was dealing with something that was life or death. And so now, I guess since that happened, Stacey Irvine is doing much better. She still eats chicken nuggets all the time, but she also eats other food as well. In fact, I'll show you a quick picture. I thought this was interesting. One of the news sources, I don't know if you can tell, took this picture, and this is her laying on top of all of the Happy Meal toys that she has acquired over the past 15 years of her chicken nugget addiction, right? And, and so why do I tell you this story? Well, here's why I tell you this story. Because when I heard this story, it occurred to me that it is totally possible to be completely full, to be completely satiated, right, in your appetite, and yet to be totally starving. Uh, it is possible to live in a food-saturated, nutritious, nutrition-conscious culture and still be absolutely malnourished. It is possible to have access to everything that you need to be healthy and to still be in a place where you're completely malnourished and starving to death. And if you can get your mind around that, I think in a really, really strange way, what we're gonna find is that Stacey Irvine's condition when she went to the hospital that day is actually not too dissimilar from that which we're gonna find in the Israelites in Amos chapter eight. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Amos chapter eight, we're gonna start in verse one. Watch what God says to Amos. Here's what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. And the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel, and I will spare them no 
longer. Let's just pause there for a second, and um, if you've been with us in the series in Amos, and if you've been reading the book of Amos, one of the things you may have recognized is that one of the ways that God speaks to Amos, and also speaks to all of the prophets in the Bible, is through visions. So God will give him a vision of something, and uh, in fact, a couple weeks ago, when we were here, we talked about the vision of the plumb line. And these visions were basically ways, illustrations that God would give to explain the condition of his people. And so here he gives another vision. And here the vision that God gives Amos is that of a basket of ripe fruit. He says, here's the vision. I want to explain the condition of my people. He says, Amos, what do you see? He says, I see a basket of ripe fruit. Now, what is that talking about? Well, it's kind of interesting. If you have different translations, some of you guys have different translations in front of you. And it might not say ripe fruit. It might say a basket of summer fruit. Summer fruit, ripe fruit. The literal translation from the original language is actually a basket of end fruit. That would have been the, the, the term that would have been used. And what is that talking about? Well, here's, here's what it's talking about. In this agricultural society, the end fruit was actually talking about a very specific time in the life cycle of fruit, and it would have been at the very end, right? This would have been that moment when it was just past expiration. This would have been that moment when the fruit would have started, it was overly ripe fruit that was just starting to go bad, and if you can think about that, if you can you know, kind of get your, your mind around that, that is actually a pretty good metaphor because what are the characteristics of overly ripe fruit? Well, we all know this. The characteristics are that outwardly, it looks good. Outwardly, it looks healthy. But inwardly, it's rotten. Inwardly, it's bruised. Inwardly, it's unhealthy, right? We all, we all know how this works. If you have a basket of fruit on your countertop in your kitchen, like one day you go in and it looks healthy and it tastes good and the very next day you come in and it might look good but you get a little closer and you realize that it's mushy or it's bruised or whatever and all of a sudden you're like, well, it's time to throw this away or it's time to make banana bread or whatever it is you do with your overly ripe fruit. And so God says, this is my people. He says, my people are like a basket of overly ripe fruit. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying this, outwardly they have an appearance of health. Outwardly, it looks like, it looks right, it looks good, but inwardly, they're, they're bruised and they're rotting and they're unhealthy and they're decayed. And their hearts are far from me, even though their actions may appear to be close to me. In fact, I want you to notice what, what God says about, this, about their situation. He actually elaborates in verse three. This is what God says. He says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. And here, here in this passage, I want you to notice that, that God is giving us this, this picture, again, of overly ripe fruit. Outwardly, the Israelites are going through the motions of religious activity, but inwardly you see that their heart posture and their motivations and, and, um, and the way that they were processing through things in their heart and their mind was very far from where God wanted them to be. In fact, I want you just to notice, if you would just observe for a minute, verses three to five, I want you to notice the discrepancy between the outward actions of God's people and the inward heart climate of his people in this passage. So, so notice in verse three to five, you'll notice that there's reference to a whole bunch of kind of interesting religious activities. So it talks about how they would go to the temple and sing songs. It talks about how they would celebrate things like a new moon and Sabbath. What are these things? Well, uh, songs in the temple, 
What that's referring to is that that was basically a worship practice for these people. They would meet together, not very uh, much unlike what we're doing right now. They would meet together regularly to sing songs of praise to God, to thank him, to remember him. They would read from the Bible, from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They called that the law. They would read from that together, remember God's faithfulness to them. Uh, They would sing songs of worship. They would give offerings to, to God. Right? Not, not too unlike what we're doing right now. So the Bible says that they were engaged in, in reg- these people were religious people. They lived in a, in, a, in a religiously saturated culture. The Bible says that they would practice the new moon festival. New moon festival, um, every lunar cycle, whenever there was a new moon, the people would have a holy day that was consecrated to God. They would not work that day. They would celebrate God's faithfulness. They would remember his faithfulness to them. Uh, the Sabbath, many of you guys know the Sabbath was a day that was commanded by God. That was actually one of the Ten Commandments. God said to his people, I want you to work for six days. On the seventh day, it's a holy day to me. Consecrate that day to me. Make that a day of remembrance. Listen to the word of God on that day. Put your heart, set your affections on me, right? And you'll notice that outwardly, the people were engaged in all this stuff. It was a religiously saturated culture. These people would go through religious motions, but notice the internal climate of their heart. Because look what the Bible says. Here's what was going on the inside. They would trample the needy and poor, and in their hearts they would say, when will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we might market wheat? So so you see what's going on. Is there, yeah, they're going through the motions, but, and they're outwardly present, they're bodily present, but inwardly they're distracted, they're preoccupied. Right, that would be like, what's happening is this would be like the equivalent of us sitting here at church today, and then the whole time, we're just daydreaming and preoccupied, and we're looking at our watch, and we're just thinking, man, when is this going to be over so we can actually just go and get to the thing that we really want to get to, which I know none of you would ever do that, right? And of course, I have never done that in my life either, right? Because we are so much better than these people, right? Not at all. And, and that's basically, but not only that, what the Bible says is to take it a step further, what these people were daydreaming about, what they were preoccupied about during these religious activities was not just going and doing something else later that day. They were actually daydreaming about how they could cheat the poor and how, how, they, could, how they could be dishonest in their business dealings so they could gain more money. And so what they were daydreaming about while they were in these religious services were the very things that would break God's heart. They'd be like us sitting here in this room daydreaming about how we can go sleep with our girlfriend or how we can go do something that's gonna dishonor God, like something really evil, like maybe rooting for the Steelers this afternoon or something like that, right? So I don't know if none of you are that evil, but, but it was like that, that they, they, they would, that outwardly, outwardly, yeah, they had an appearance of something good, but inwardly, their heart was far from God. They, they were disengaged in, in many, many, many different ways. And so it's because of this that God, day after day, week after week, year after year of this, God finally, the Bible says, that he finally pronounces a very, very interesting judgment on his people. And this judgment that he pronounces, in my opinion, in all of the book of Amos, it's probably the worst of them all. Here's what God says to his people. Look at verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. They will wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And 
here's what's so interesting. God looks at his people and he says, I'm going to send a famine on the land. But he says, it's not going to be a famine of food. It's not going to be a a famine of water. He says, it's going to be a famine of the word of the Lord. It's going to be a famine to hear from me, to hear my voice, to hear what I have to say to you. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think, I think what's actually happening is this. This is, this is my, my, my thought on it. I think, I think what God is saying is this. I think God is saying, if you're not willing to listen to me, then I'm going to stop talking. I think what God is saying to his people is this. He's saying, I have went to every length to give you such incredible access to know me and to pursue me. The Israelites had an unparalleled access to God in a way that none of the other nations did. And I think what God is saying is, if, if you're not gonna, if I'm gonna give you all of these things and you're outwardly going to be present, but inwardly you're gonna be preoccupied and wishing you were somewhere else and thinking about, if you're not willing to engage in my word, then what good is it for me to keep talking to you? I think it makes sense. If you think about it in relational terms, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Just, just think about it for a minute. If you and I were friends, if you and I were friends, and, and every time we hung out, I would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and you could never get a word in. And every time you talked, I just zoned out. Like every time you, you tried to talk, share your thoughts, share your passion, share your interests with me, if every time you did that, I just got my phone out and was like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. And would like, you know, just kind of like text someone else or just like, you know, check the score of whatever game it was or like look at my news feed or play Candy Crush or whatever. If that's what I would do every time you talk to me, what would you eventually do? Here's what you would do. I know what you would do. You'd stop talking to me. What's the point? Why would I keep talking to you if you're not going to listen to me? It would be damaging to our friendship. It would not be a healthy relationship. And here's what God's saying. He's saying, you're going through all these motions and you're bodily present, but man, you're preoccupied. So, so I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to, I'm going to stop saying the things that I want. And the, the crazy thing is the paradox of all of this is here God's people lived in a religiously saturated time where they had more access to the heart of God than any nation around them, and yet they were still shutting their ears off and they were completely devoid of knowing God's heart in these ways. Now, here's the thing. Okay, that was 2,700 years ago, right, in Amos' time. And maybe some of you are thinking, okay, so what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with you and me in Medina, Ohio, sitting in this room today? Listen, I don't think it's going to take a whole lot for us to figure out that there is a pretty strong parallel between Amos' time and Amos' culture in our time and our culture today. Right? And we had talked about in the past how in Amos's culture they were experiencing a time of unparalleled affluence and wealth. And we said that really in our culture today it's very, very similar. And not only that, one of the other similarities that we share with God's people back in this time is that they had uh, just unparalleled access to the things of God, to the words of God. And today, one of the things that's true about our society and our culture here in 21st century America in Medina, Ohio, is we have an unparalleled access to the things of God and to the word of God like no other people group in the history of the world. I want you just to consider with me for a moment some of these staggering facts that I was looking up over the past couple of weeks uh, about the Bible today in America. Check this out. Did you know that the number of printed English translations and paraphrases of the Bible, English in the English language, whether complete or not, is about 900? about 900 translations of the English Bible that we have available to us. And we have unparalleled access 
to the Bible like, like no other culture has ever had before. Um, there are over 300,000 evangelical churches in the United States today. Uh, 300,000. If you want to if you want to connect to the heart of God, if you want to know what God, you know, the things of God, we have over 300,000 opportunities to connect in one way or another with a group of people who are like-minded in that. Um, the with uh, with of course with the rise of the internet, it's opened up free access to a limitless amount of commentaries and Bible study resources. We are so privileged in the fact that we have such amazing access just to commentaries and to Bible study resources, and all of them or most of them are free that we have for us. Um, there are hundreds of Bible apps, hundreds of Bible apps. I don't even know the specific number. I was trying to look up the specific number of Bible apps this past week, and uh, there's actually no uh, accurate data that I could find on this, but I went to the app store and just searched Bible and just was scrolling and noticed, man, app after app, hundreds, and most of them are free. And I think the craziest thing is this. This still boggles my mind. With the rise of the Bible app, your Bible will read itself to you. Isn't that crazy? I think still that blows my mind. How privileged are we that if you have a Bible app, there's a feature where you just hit play and it will narrate itself to you. Like I've talked to people before and they would be like, yeah, the Bible, I don't really read the Bible. I just don't like to read. I'm like, dude, your Bible will read itself to you. You just hit play, and that's it. And that, it'll, it'll, like, when else in the history of the universe has that ever happened before? It's amazing. It's amazing. Listen, over 100 million copies of the Bible are sold or are given away every year. Annual Bible sales in America are worth between 425 and $650 million. Gideon's International, you guys, you guys know Gideon's? They're the organization that puts the Bible in your, in your drawer in the hotel room. Um, they give away a Bible Every second, Bible, 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 it's crazy. Um, America's, Americans buy more than 20 million new Bibles every year to add to the four that the average person in America already has. And, and what am I pointing out? Here's what I'm just pointing out is we live in a very privileged time. We live at a time where we have access to the Bible and to the, to the things of God in a way that no other culture in the history of the world has ever had. And yet, and yet, here's what's so mind-blowing. According to the Gallup poll, George Gallup is a Christian pollster, uh, he did this elaborate study on, um, on, on, the, on the Christian's basic knowledge of the Bible in America, and what he found was this. His conclusion to his survey was that America is right now a nation of biblical illiterates. How, how paradoxical that we live in a time where we have more access to the word of God than anyone else in the history of the world, and at the same time, we are the most illiterate of those who have access to the Bible in the history of the world. Why is that? Well, here's my speculation, and if I could be so bold to say it, I think the reality is that that exposes that, quite honestly, we have a problem with the Bible. I think, I think we, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in church. I think we have a problem with the Bible. And when I say we, I, I lump myself in that category too. I think we have a problem with the Bible. And here, here's the problem. Here's what it is. I think it's this, simply put, we don't actually read it. Like, not for real. 
Like my guess, my, this is my guess. My guess if I was to take a survey of all of us who follow Jesus, who are part of our church or the church, or Grace Church around here, and I was to ask how many, how many, I'm not actually asking this, but if I was to ask how many of us actually read the Bible, not like listen to a podcast about the Bible or listen to a sermon or read a book about the Bible, but actually read it for 15 or 20 minutes every day, my guess is that number is probably pretty low. And I gotta be real honest with you, sometimes I wonder, uh, the reason I, I read the Bible often, a lot of times, just being completely honest, is because it's my job. Right? I have to prepare for things and get ready. And sometimes I wonder, if, if it wasn't for being in ministry, would I, would I read it more than that? Just being honest with you. I think we got a problem with the Bible. And, and, and I, think, I think if I went around and I asked, how many, how many of us have actually read the Bible cover to cover? I think that number would actually be lower now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to congratulate the self-righteous. So if you're like, well, I read my Bible every day and I've read it all the way through, so I'm great. I'm like, that's not what I'm trying to get at. But what I'm trying to get at is what's amazing to me is that many of us in this room, not everyone, but many of us in this room would look at the Bible and say, yeah, we base our life around this, this, this book. And yet a lot of us haven't actually read the whole thing. Because right? I, I think that for, for many people, the, the interaction, our interaction with the Bible looks like this. It looks like I don't actually really read it but I like to come here, and I like that some of you guys like to read it. That's cool. And I like that you guys nerd out on it. And I like the 45-minute TED Talk thing we do here every week. And sometimes, sometimes I don't like it. Like, if you're not funny, I don't really like it. But it, sometimes it's entertaining, it's amusing, it's engaging, and that's awesome. But I don't really read the Bible. It's kind of not my thing. Kind of not my thing. I think for some of us, it's kind of our interaction with the Bible. And if that kind of explains you or if that describes you, listen, let me just say, I get that. I actually really understand that. Because let's be honest, the Bible's not an easy read. I think Amos is a case in point. The Bible's not always easy to read. It's full of people we've never heard of and places we've never heard of and names we've never heard of and literary genres that we don't make sense. I mean, for crying out loud, on page three in the Bible, there's a talking snake. And, and so, so it's difficult sometimes to make sense of it. And, to, and honestly, a lot of times we, just, we don't try. We just don't try. But here's the problem. The Bible speaks about itself in very critical terms. So, so for example, you know what the Bible says about itself? The, the most common name the Bible gives itself is the word of God. This is what Jesus calls the Bible, the word of God. Now, I, I want you to think about that. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't call itself words about God. It's not a religious textbook. It's not a systematic theology book that helps. Ex- it is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed. It is his words to us. Think about that for a minute. You and I, if, if you and I are friends, how do you get to know my heart? How do you get to know my, my passions? How do you get to know my desires? My words. My words are the, are, are the vehicle that carry those things. They carry my thoughts. They carry my intentions. They carry my passions. How do we get to know God? His word. It's not, it's not just about accumulating more knowledge. It's about knowing God's heart. The Bible calls it God's word. You know what the Bible says about itself? Here's what the Bible says about itself. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing the word of God. You wanna grow in your faith? The Bible says that's impossible apart from his words. The, the most common metaphor that's used about the Bible itself in the Bible is the Bible calls the word of God food. It is food. Jesus says in Matthew chapter four, quoting from Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone, 
but he lives on every word that comes from God. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying, that what food is to the physical body, God's word is to the spiritual man, to the spiritual woman. What is it? It's health and nourishment and sustenance. In the same way that I can't just eat one meal a week and expect to be a healthy person, I can't expect to have one interaction in God's word and expect to be a healthy person. It needs to be a steady, continual meal after meal to bring me to a place of nourishment and growth and health where God wants me to be. It's no wonder that in Amos, when God says he's gonna remove his word from his people, the metaphor he uses is a famine. Why a famine? Because without God's word, we starve. We starve spiritually. We starve. We're not healthy the way that God wants us to be healthy. We don't know God's heart and God's desires. And like I said, the paradox of it all is that it is possible to live in a time where we have unparalleled access to God's word and to still be starving to death. It is possible for us to fill ourselves up on a bunch of other stuff and to be totally malnourished. It's actually interesting, I was reading um, a really, there's a really um, uh, formative essay that was written, I think it was written in the mid 80s, it was called Amusing Ourselves to Death, really a really interesting name, by a guy named Neil Postman. And Neil Postman in this article was comparing two uh, literary classics. He was comparing the book 1984. You guys remember 1984? Anyone read 1984 for, in high school? That's the whole Big Brother is Watching book. It was by George Orwell. It was kind of this like this abysmal scene of you know Big Brother, this totalitarian government that's gonna oppress people and burn books and squelch knowledge, right? That's 1984. So he's comparing 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You guys remember reading Brave New World? It's kind of probably had to read it in high school or something. But Brave New World was, was another, both of these books were kind of social commentaries and they were basically about the trajectory and the demise of society. They're really uplifting reads. You should read both of them. But he was comparing the two philosophies of Orwell in 1984 and Huxley in Brave New World. And I want you to notice what he said. I thought this was so good. He said what Orwell feared, remember Orwell wrote 1984, Big Brother, that whole thing. What he feared was that those, uh, those who had banned books what Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who actually wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture Hugsley feared that we become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. I love that last term, centrifugal bumble puppy. It sounds like a good band name, doesn't it? I actually went back, and uh, if you've actually read uh, Brave New World, you might remember feelies, orgy-porgy, you can look that stuff up on your own. Centrifugal uh, bumble puppy was actually referring to a game that was played, and I thought this was crazy. Centrifugal bumble puppy is actually, you guys ever play, um, oh, what is it called? The game where you, I think it's called funnel ball, where you, th- like in the, on the playground, you throw the ball up in that funnel, and it comes out of the four different, that's centrifugal bumble puppy. So there you go, now you, now you know that. But what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Here's what uh, Neil Postman is saying. He's saying, it is possible to be totally full and starving to death at the same time. It is possible to fill ourselves with a bunch of irrelevant stuff. Orgy-porgy and centrifugal bumble puppy and you know, feelies. And what's he saying? He's saying, listen, it, the, the, the modern equivalent would be, it is possible to fill ourselves on entertainment and amusement and Netflix and 
social media and Minecraft and Candy Crush and all this other stuff, sports and the pursuit of money, it's possible, and don't hear me wrong, I'm not anti those things, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is possible to fill ourselves up on chicken nuggets and to be completely malnourished and starving to death for what we actually need. And it's right there in front of us. The word of God is what God is for our nourishment and for our growth. We can fill ourselves. It is possible to have food in your hands and still be starving to death and be malnourished. It's possible to live in a religiously and biblically saturated culture and time and still be absolutely famished. Totally possible. God has given us his word for our nourishment and for our growth. And when we, and when we, and when we fail to, to seek out God's heart by seeking out his word, we drift from his heart and we drift into scripture starvation. Let me ask you guys to do something real quick. If you, if you have a Bible, would you get your Bible in your hands for a minute? I just want you to hold your Bible. And even if it's on your phone, I just want you to hold your phone. All right, just grab, grab your Bible. Get a copy of the Bible in your hands somehow right now. And once you got it, would you just hold it up in the air for a second? Just hold your Bible in the air. Hold it up in the air. All right, you, you can put it down. Just keep it in your hands. I want you to look at your Bible for a second. All right, just look at it. And just for a second, I want you to consider with me how valuable and how precious and how amazing it is that you have in your hands what you have in your hands right now. I said, I don't know if you're aware of the great lengths, the great lengths that God has went to, to put this in your hands in his grace. The library that you hold in your hands right now is so valuable. I call it a library because actually thinking about the Bible as a library is more accurate than thinking about it as a book. Uh, a book is written you know, at one time, that kind of, this is, this is a library. It is 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, written on three different continents and three different languages, and yet it tells one amazing story one congruent, amazing story. Um, many people have risked life and limb to preserve this, to translate this, to get this around the world. Uh, many people have tried to eradicate this library from human history unsuccessfully. Um, before the advent of the printing press, uh, it would take a skilled and rapid writer 10 months to make one copy of the Bible. Want to, to own a Bible would have, been, would have cost you more than having a landed estate. And yet, we're holding it in our hands right now. It is on your phone. It is in your pocket. And I just say all that because I just want you to think for a minute how much God must want to have a relationship with you and he wants to talk to you that he has went to such lengths to put this in your hands. God wants to speak with you. He wants you to experience nourishment and life and he wants you to have health in your relationships and in your marriage and in your job and in, 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 in your purpose and pursuing. God loves you and he wants to speak with you. And he has went to such lengths to put this in your hands. We are so privileged to have this. And yet, yet, it is possible to be surrounded, to be swimming in a culture of Bibles and to still be starving to death. If we don't come to this and we don't allow it to transform us, if we just settle for a mediocre understanding of what God has to say and don't, don't plunge deeper into these things, it's possible. 
to be completely malnourished. One of the things that we desire so deeply for everyone who goes to Grace Church, one of the things we desire so deeply is not just that you would love to come and hear the Bible taught, but is that you would love the Bible. I, I oftentimes tell people, I said, man, in your discipleship to Jesus, the moment you, you acquire a deep love for scripture is a moment of spiritual growth for you that you, you, you can't even fathom. Because why? Because, man, if this is God's word, if this is food for our soul, this is what's going to lead to health. This is what's going to lead to nourishment. This is going to what's lead to vitality. What we deeply desire for everyone that goes to the church, we want you to love this book, love this library, know it. And not just so that we can be like, you know, uh, biblical eggheads that just walk around being like, I know a lot about the Bible, but because we believe it's God's word. We believe we can know God's heart, that it can transform us and lead us to the life that he wants us to live. And so when we stray from scripture, when we stray from, from, from starving ourselves from God's word, it leads to scripture starvation and we drift from God's heart. It's what happened in Amos this time. And we are just as susceptible to the same dangerous drift. I want to invite the band to come up. And uh, as the band settles in, I, I actually just want to close with, with two, kind of final, um, two kind of final challenges for two very specific audiences. And then, and then we'll be finished. So, so here's my, my first challenge, okay? And this challenge is, is really to those of us who follow Jesus. So for those of us who would say that, yeah, man, we, we, we thought we want Christ to define and direct our lives and, and uh, we would look at God's word as his word to us. Uh, my challenge is, is pretty simple on this one. And uh, I think Ben Stewart, Ben Stewart is a, a pastor and he said it so well. I thought he said it really well. He said this. He said, I've never met a strong Christian who doesn't meditate on God's word every day. And I've never met a weak one who does. And I thought what he said is so strong. It's just true. If, if God's word is what it claims to be, then it, it makes sense that you couldn't, you can't be in a healthy position, you can't be nourished and healthy if you're not eating on a regular basis. And so my, 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 my hope is that if you're a follower of Jesus, is that maybe this conversation has just given you a new perspective and has maybe breathed a new um, inspiration and motivation into you to fight, to, to find time, to settle for more than just a mediocre interaction with the Bible. And so maybe for you, it's carving out time every day to say, I'm gonna put it in my calendar, I'm gonna schedule it out, I'm gonna start going through a reading plan. Maybe for some of you, that intimidates you, you don't even know where to start. And, uh, and listen, if that's the case, I would just say, that's, if you're intimidated, that's fine, but, but what are you doing about that? Is there something you can do? Uh, we have a bunch of really awesome resources. Even if you go to our website, medinaeast.graceohio.org, there's something called E4. All of that is for free. There's courses like How to Study Your Bible is on there, New Testament and Old Testament survey. If you desire a deeper knowledge of God's word, it's available to you. There's a million resources. Get involved in a biblical community. Get involved in life groups. Join one of the new life groups, Tommy's life group that's there. It's, it's around a group of people who are, who are devoted to knowing and trying to follow God's word in their life. I encourage you to take those steps. And, and again, my hope is that it just breathes a new motivation and inspiration into you and passion for God's word. Now here's my second challenge. My second challenge is, is really for those who are investigating Jesus. And so maybe you're a person who this whole conversation, maybe you've even felt kind of neglected because we're, we were talking about God's word and how this is, you know, this is inspired and it's what God says to us. And maybe you're a person that's like, well, dude, I don't even know if I really trust the Bible. 
how do I know what the Bible is and where did it come from and, and how do I know it's reliable? And I would just say there are some really excellent resources that are available on what the Bible is, where it came from, and its reliability, and I would be happy to point you to many of those resources. In fact, if you write a comment on your connection card and put that in the basket, or if you just write, you can even write me an email, I'd be happy to forward you those things, but here's my real challenge to you. Here's my real challenge. If you're investigating Christ, my challenge to you, and I dare you to do this, I'm just gonna go ahead and quadruple dog dare you. We'll go to four, from one to four. I'm quadruple dog daring you to read your Bible, to read it every day for 90 days. And here, here's why I challenge you to do that. This is, this is the reason why. And, and to re, when I say read it, I mean actually read it with an open mind and not just you know let the words bounce off your ears, but actually open yourself. Read a chapter a day, start in Matthew. Start in the New Testament, maybe go in Matthew, and for 90 days, just read a chapter every day. And here, here's why I challenge you to do that, because I believe faith comes from hearing God's word. That's what the Bible says about itself. It's fine to read other books about the Bible. It's fine to read other books. You can Google what is Christianity. I don't think there's any substitute for actually reading the word itself, that something in, in that process will transform your heart. And the reason I'm saying that, by the way, is not just because I think that's a good thing to say. It's because it's actually a big part of my story. Uh, just real briefly, some of you might know if you've been here for a while, I gave my life to Christ. I started following him uh, right before my 17th birthday. It was right before I was 17 years old. And, it, and coincidentally, and it's not a coincidence at all, but a year and a half before I made a decision to follow Christ, I remember someone gave me my first Bible. I actually remember my first Bible. My first Bible was given to me by my brother. I have a, an older brother. And he, was, uh, he went to the mall one day with his friends, and he came home. And he had this little pocket-sized New Testament. You guys know what I'm talking about? I guess that the Gideons, there they are again, the Gideons were given away at the, at the mall. And so my brother took one, and when he got home, he threw it at me. He threw the Bible at me. Like, not like in a mean way. He just kind of tossed it to me. And he goes, here, you want that? And I, I picked it up. And I actually looked at it, and I thought it looked cool. And so I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, thanks, man. I'll take it. I just thought it looked cool. Like, oh, it's a little book. I don't know. It kind of looks kind of neat. And so I would take it with me, and I actually put it in my, I put it in my pocket, put it in my backpack. And uh, I remember in study hall. I was in study hall, and I started to read it because, you know, who wants to do homework in study hall? And so I was like, oh, I'll read the Bible, you know. And so I, I got out the New Testament. I started reading in Matthew, right there on page one of that New Testament. I started reading it. And you got to understand, I didn't, I didn't, like, I didn't really hang out with Bible people. I didn't know much about that. I didn't know what I was reading. Most of the time, I was confused. I'd be reading, I'd be like, I don't get that, I don't get, oh, that's kind of cool, that's neat, I don't get that, oh, that sounds cool, and that was kind of my interaction, and, and just to give you a picture, like I said, I wasn't hanging out with other Bible people, but just to give you a picture of the kind of people I was hanging out with, I remember I was in study hall, and I was reading the New Testament, and one of my friends was like, dude, he's like, what are you reading? And I was like, oh, I was like, I'm reading the Bible, and he's like, Why? And I was like, I don't know, it's better than doing homework, I don't know, you know? And he's like, let me see it. And I was like, fine, I threw him the Bible. He looks at it, he starts leafing through the pages, and he goes, man, he goes, these pages would make really excellent rolling papers. And I was like, dude, give me my Bible back, you know, and he gave it back, and I was just like, so, so I wasn't like hanging out with a crew of people that were into the Bible, and, but yet what happened was I, I made my way through from Matthew to Revelation all the way through the New Testament, and when I was done, I went back and I read it again. Matthew, Revelation, when I was done, I went back, 
I read it again. I read through this New Testament probably three times. And as that happened, man, something in my heart, I don't even know what it was. I realized I was dealing with something different. Something in my heart started to transform and eventually I gave my life over to Jesus. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's what the Bible says about itself. Faith comes from hearing the word. Here's what I found. I found that most people who are against the Bible or take an issue with the Bible haven't actually really read it. They know enough of the Bible to point out the things they disagree with, but they've never actually read it. And so my challenge to you, what I would actually challenge you to do is to actually read it, to read it, to try for 90 days, a chapter a day, maybe even starting in the book of Matthew. Because the truth is, faith comes in hearing the word, and it's possible to live in a biblically saturated culture and to still be starving to death and malnourished if we don't allow it to work itself into our hearts. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just, I want to say thank you for your grace to us. You're gracious that you would go to such a great length to deliver to us your words. Uh, we, we recognize, God, we live in a privileged time that's, uh, man, un- we just have access in an unparalleled way to you that no other, you know, group of people in the history of humanity have had. And uh, it's easy, God, it's real easy to take it for granted. It's easy to fill ourselves with a bunch of other stuff. There's, there's so many distractions that we are bombarded by every day that we are tempted to fill ourselves up with. God, we're tempted to just eat chicken nuggets and to not, to not go after the things that will ultimately satisfy the soul and bring nourishment and health. Father, I know uh, that your word brings life. I know that your word brings perspective, that your word is what carries your heart and your thoughts and your mind, and it's what carries your perception on things. And, and because of that, God, I pray that you would help us to, to get to know your word because we want to get to know you. And I pray that you would allow us to um, just give us an insatiable appetite to, to know you, to know your word, and to love it. I pray that for every person in this room, I pray that they would have a love, a love of the Bible and that that would propel them into the life that you desire for them. So God, thanks for your grace to us. Thanks that you're patient with us um, in the times that we take your, your word for granted. I pray that we'd be blessed for having heard what we heard today and Lord, that you would help us to take the things that we've learned and to put them into action, that, that we would have faith and deeds and they would work together. And we just want to ask these things in Christ's name.